Welcome to Preston Minster. Find your home, find your purpose, transform your city. Let's jump into this week's talk. words I have on my script are, hello, my name is Stephen, but he's already done that. Um, Yeah, today we are launching our All in August series looking at friendships. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks or so. You can tell that I'm new here because there's two important things that Tim doesn't know about me. Number one, I am really bad at friendships. Number two, I'm really, really bad at forgiving people. And the first thing I have to preach about is forgiveness in friendships. That's going to be tricky. But actually, one of the hardest conversations I've had over the last couple of years was when me and my now wife were trying to figure out who my groomsmen were going to be. And we spent quite a long time talking it over. And like I said, I'm really bad at friendship. But Fionn is the opposite of me. She's great at building deep, meaningful, rich friendships. So for her, we spent a long time and a lot of heartache and a lot of emotions bringing down her massive list of best friends to just the 15 people she could not be without. (laughs) And I was like, I got two at a stretch and it's horrible. But this conversation, it actually really hurt. It was one of the loneliest moments I've had in my adult life because it made me look back over the last 15 years and think about all of those people who I had been friends with but who I hadn't prioritized, who I hadn't worked on, who I hadn't invested in. And it was hard and it was lonely. And I don't think I'm the only person that feels that way. I think loads of us here struggle to feel connected to feel like we have friends. There's a YouGov poll that says that in 2019, one third, sorry, one fifth of all men said that they had no close friends at all. One fifth of all men. By 2021, that had gone up to one in three. One in three. That is one in three men in this room who probably would say they have zero close friends at all. I think it's a particularly male problem, but not just a male problem. We're sort of in the middle of a loneliness and mental health epidemic after COVID. So I think it affects all of us. But that's pretty shocking, isn't it? One third of the men here would say they have no close friends at all. Here's a question for you. What do you think Jesus' least talked about miracle is? That's not a rhetorical question. That's an actual question. What do you think? What do you think his least talked about miracle is? It's quite hard, isn't it? Because it's the least talked about. Okay, here's what I think the answer is. The fact that he was a man in his 30s with 12 close friends. Like, I don't know anyone who has that many friends other than Fionn, and it's insane. It's 
It's like one person I want to spend three years with, not 12. So what I'm saying is that God has something to say about friendships. He has something to say about relationships. And he's really, really good at it. Okay, so we're going to dive in by looking at John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. So feel free to get that up on your phones, your Bibles, however you want to do it. So a little bit of background. This passage is right at the end of John's Gospel. So that's the story of Jesus' life, according to John. So Jesus had been born, he's taught, he's preached, performed miracles, all of that stuff. And then he is coming to the end of his life, and he comes to Jerusalem, where he is arrested. And in the moments after his arrest, his 12 closest disciples, those 12 best friends who have been with him through thick and thin, run away. They all run away into the night, including his closest friend, Simon Peter. And Peter follows Jesus. He follows him to where he's being imprisoned. And he stands outside. And the crowd say, you know Jesus. We're going to kill you too. And he denies it. He says, no, that's not me. I don't know Jesus. And then Jesus is killed. He's crucified. And then the greatest day in history happens. Easter. When death is defeated. When the power, the love, the sacrifice of God defeats death, sin, evil, the devil, and makes the world new in the resurrected body of Jesus. As Jesus rises from the tomb, the world is made new through his resurrected life. And then he comes back to his disciples, he teaches them a bit more, and just before he ascends to heaven, he forgives and reinstates Peter. And that's our passage today. John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Okay, I think there are two things we need to take from this passage. Number one, we need to see something about Jesus' forgiveness, that it is all-powerful, that it is restorative. And number two, we need to see how we are to respond. Okay, now I know you shouldn't have favourites, but Peter is my favourite disciple. All the other disciples are very jealous, but there you go. And the reason I like him is that he's a big talker. He says a lot of stuff and he's just really honest. But he's the first disciple to know that Jesus is God. He's the first one to say, you are the Messiah. And when Jesus is arrested, he's the one who rips out his sword and starts to fight. He, he wounds one of the men coming to arrest Jesus. And he 
he says, he promises to Jesus that he will never run. That no matter what happens, no matter if everyone else abandons you, I will stay. But he doesn't. Like all the others, when it really comes down to it, he runs away. He turns his back on God, on his friend. Now that's something I think we all do. In fact, I think it's a pretty good definition of sin, to turn your back on God. We see it throughout the Bible, right from the garden, all the way through. People always turning away from God, twisting away from him. Here's my definition of sin, one of them. It's any time we try to twist reality for the illusion that something else can be God. Anytime we try to put something in God's place, be that money or sex or power, be that your family, your spouse, your children, your church, a good thing or a bad thing, anything we try to put in God's place is sin. It's twisting of reality for the sake of an illusion. It's saying that God is not God. But in Jesus, in Easter, in Jesus' resurrection, the world is untwisted. It is remade. It is reformed. It is renewed. Everything that was broken is made new. trouble with being in the round is I lose track of my notes and then they're the other side of the room. (laughs) So give me one second. So Jesus makes the world right. He renews it. He makes everything right. And his forgiveness flows out from the cross, from the blood of the cross into the world. And he invites us into this newness, into this rightness, into this, the way the world should be. The resurrected world into the new kingdom. That's the invitation we have to life, life in its fullest. There's an old saying that God doesn't come, that Jesus didn't come to heal sick people to make people well. He came to raise the dead, to bring the dead to life. And that is what he does for us. He doesn't make bad people good. He makes dead people alive. That's the invitation. And God's forgiveness is this restoration. So we see it in our passage. When Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs, he's not a sort of weird pet guy who's got some sheep and he's about to go on holiday to be with his dad for a while and he's really worried about no he's saying to Peter I restore you I put you back into the place you were in I made you new I bring you home God's forgiveness is not the sort of reluctant half forgiveness that we so often experience where things aren't really finished God's forgiveness is full. It is the new 
life of the new creation. This is the good news. This is the gospel. That God brings life to its fullest. But what does that mean? When your kid kicks you in the back of a car, or when your spouse is being annoying, or when your friend does that thing that only they know that's going to really hurt you, or when you get cut off in traffic. What does the gospel mean then? It's all very well, but if it doesn't affect our lives, it's sort of meaningless, right? It's just a philosophy that we sign up to. How does this truth shape us? So we're going to jump now to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Again, a little bit of background. What we call Colossians is a letter. It's a letter written by Paul to the church of Colossae in some time in the sort of mid-first century. So we're talking the very early Christians, the very first Christians. And it's about how to live that resurrected life, how to live in a changed world when the world around you is not changed. How do you follow Jesus? So feel free to get up on your phones or your Bibles, however you, however you want, but it will also be on the screen. And it starts, therefore, now side note, therefore is one of the most important words in the Bible. It's like an equal sign. It means that everything that's happened in the passage just before here equals something. There's a response to it. Every time you see therefore, go back a couple of pages. A couple of pages, a couple of sentences. I'm going to paraphrase what was just happening there. But because of this change in us, because of this new world, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In other words, this is what it means to be a disciple. All of our twisting, our turning, our desperate attempts to make something else God has been forgiven, has been made new, has been set right. All of this is forgiven. Therefore, forgive others as God has forgiven us. All of this is different. The rules of the game have changed. We no longer live in a world where petty grievances, where unforgiveness, where selfishness has any place. We live in the resurrected world of the risen king. We live in Jesus. But the thing is, that's a virtue. This Christ-like forgiveness is a virtue. It's not a particularly common word, but it just means a character trait, something valuable inside us, a part of who we are. But it's something that has to be nurtured, has to be cared for, diligently worked at so that it grows 
It does not just happen overnight. It takes hard work, hard graft. Now, like I said, I, we've just got married. And we don't have any children. But here's a challenge. Here's a challenge for you, particularly for the men. If one third, roughly, of the men in this room would say that they have no friends at all, is that the world you want your children to live in? Because the only way that that changes, the only way that this gospel truth of forgiveness, of Christ-like forgiveness, grows in the world is when we do that hard graft. Yeah, the church is there to do it with us. And God's going to empower us to do it. But if you want that virtue to grow, you need to invite Jesus in. You need to do the hard work of growing the virtue of forgiveness, of gentleness, of compassion, humility and patience, of love. We need to cultivate that. And I don't have the answers. I don't think there are easy solutions for how you do that. The only thing we can do is turn to God and ask him for help. So that's what we're going to do now. I want to invite the band to come up. And I want to invite everybody to to stand. Thanks for listening. Follow us on social media. See you next week.